okay. Yeah, just a second, Gina. We're just be quiet for a second, then I'll just say, Gina, welcome to the show. Quiet. We're about to start. Welcome back to the Fascinating Podcast. This is episode number 252, and this week we're talking about grief and the process of reconstruction. I'm J.R. Forceros. And I am Matt Michelados, who often brings you grief, so we're glad to bring it to you again. (laughs) On this week's show, we're going to be talking about grief with Gina Brenna Butts, author of Making Peace with Change, Navigating Life's Messy Transitions with Honesty and Grace. But first, I want to share the story with you, JR. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, I did not. Lay it on me. <laughs> so, here's the story about a woman who didn't have much of a green thumb, but she had managed to keep alive like a succulent, uh, you know, which is kind of like sort of cactusy kind of plant, right? She's like carefully taking care of it. She's putting it out by the window. She even would dust it like with a a cloth that had been dampened to make sure it was like dust free. And she watered it on a really specific schedule. She'd get mad at other people if they tried to water it. Like she had it all figured out and she was like, it's staying alive. It's healthy, blah, blah, blah. She buys a new pot to replant it and she pulls it out and there's no dirt. There's dirt that has been pasted on top of styrofoam because the plant is fake. And she's been taking care of it for two years. <laughs> That's wow. <laughs> I just think it's delightful. What is what does this do to your self esteem? Because she had to be feeling pretty great about how good that plant looked. I mean, it sounds like her identity was wrapped up in it. Like she would get mad at her friends when they watered it. She doesn't want it overwatered or underwatered. I'm like, what happens when you pour water in something that has a styrofoam block under it? Yeah, I would assume the water leaks out, or, I mean, I guess it could evaporate. Maybe she was just putting a tiny little bit in when she watered. Do you have, do you have, like, a green thumb, JR? Like, how are you with plants? Oh, oh, no, 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 no. No? Do you just just murder them, or what? Um, so I had an ex-girlfriend who gave me a plant. It might have been her mom that gave me the plant. I think it was a test. (laughs) And I... Put it on my porch thinking, hey, um, plants live outside. Plants live outside. And it died pretty quick. Uh, and uh, then we broke up. So I think it what? was a test. And I what is the test? If you can keep this alive, I can entrust my daughter to you? Yeah, I think so. Wow. So. I mean, wow. That's interesting. And then whichever kind of plant she gives the boyfriend shows how much trust she has in them. I don't know. I mean, this was, I think if I remember right, it was like a fern. It wasn't even hard to keep alive. I think I just had to say it's pretty hard to kill a fern. Thank you. (laughs) This has now been good for my (laughs) self-esteem. So it got like sunstroke and you were like, oh, it's turning brown. And then you just like left it. But sometimes ferns are brown. It's more like I forgot that it existed. This was a long distance relationship. And so uh, after a couple of weeks, she asked me how it was doing. And I was like, oh, yeah, great. And then I went outside and it was definitely dead. So were you tempted to buy another? No. 
Because you knew that that relationship was gone at that point. No, I just, just don't buy into. Uh, I just don't buy into those kinds of. You know, I'm going to test you with this thing. If that's yeah. what, I, again, I don't know that that's what it was. It was, but it was I don't never play those games. explicitly stated. Keep this alive, and you can date my daughter. No, that would have been weird, right? Yeah, and I probably at that point would have uh, pulled it out by the roots and put it in the garbage disposal and been like, "Well." <laughs> <laughs> I don't do well with manipulation. <laughs> uh, intense. You're like, I would never do this to my, to your daughter, but yeah, this wow. is what I think of your, uh, thinly veiled attempts to manipulate me. Amazing. Amazing. That's, that's amazing. Do you, so, so what you about don't you? want any plants. You don't want like, here's the thing. Yeah. Here's the thing. I don't, I don't pay attention to plants. Like, whether they're present or not, I don't stop to smell the roses, as they say. So, yeah, I don't care if they're present. Like, I don't think my house looks better with plants in front of it or not. I don't. I just don't care. I have more important things to do in my life than worry about greenery. <laughs> so, uh, I wonder. So, Clay and Kathy are gone today. I don't know if you all noticed that. Uh, <laughs> they're both traveling. Yeah, they're both traveling, which is a common issue for us on this show. Um, I Clay doesn't have any plants at his house, does he? No, they barely have a yard. Yeah. And then I wonder if Kathy has plants. You know, here, Matt, I've been to Kathy's house, and I don't remember. I couldn't tell you. Because uh-huh, as we've you don't covered, pay any I don't attention. pay attention. Yeah. What about well, you? You have a yard. I have tons of plants. My wife likes to garden and I've planted a whole bunch of trees. There was nothing in our backyard and I've planted a plum tree, a pear tree, two maples and an apple tree. And then we have, you know, rhododendrons and so, but wait, tons hold of on. roses with trees. Do you care for those trees or yeah. can't you just plant a tree and then it grows? You can. They're often not healthy if you don't prune them from time to time. Um, and it, they, it actually helps, especially if you're in a suburb kind of location, which like we have very like kind of clay and sorry, clay, we have clay instead of soil. Um, <laughs> so it's helpful if every once in a while you actually fertilize the trees too, which is pretty easy. It's like a stake and you just like knock it into the ground. Um, so you're saying clay is bad for plants. Clay is terrible for plants. Okay. Uh, most plants. There, there are a few. Like, there's a plant called the gen plant that does very well in clay. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, so we have tons of plants outside, and then we have some. Uh, we have some cactus inside. Uh, and on the holidays, we get you know. Now again, cacti. The whole point of those is you don't have to water them, right? You very rarely need to water them, and actually, you're in more danger of overwatering them and killing them. That sounds like the kind of plan I could be down with. Yeah, they're they don't touch them, but they're uh, we we have one actually. You might like this chair. We have a uh, we have a special cactus that if you care for it well, meaning ignore it largely, <laughs> that every once in a great while it gets this beautiful flower on it that only lasts for like a day or something, um, day and a half maybe or two days. Uh, it's kind of cool because most of the time you're just not noticing it. And then one day you walk in and there's this giant, beautiful purple flower on it. So I don't know. try it. 
I like the idea of one of those plants that you have to like care for for 10 years and then it blooms one time at night. It's this amazing thing, but like right. no way I would ever make it there. I'd be traveling. Yeah. Um, <laughs> everyone's like, your, your flower, it's so beautiful. I'm like, oh, I missed it. Okay. Take pictures. And Matt, if that happened, would it cause you grief? It would definitely cause me grief. I'm very, this is dumb, but I'm actually very sensitive about my trees. <laughs> I love my maple tree actually has a sickness right now, a pretty common sickness for this area. And I'm like distraught. There's no way to fix it. It's just like a, how long can you make the tree comfortable? <laughs> um, do you give it cough syrup? <laughs> no, with this specific disease, really the only thing you can do for it is cut away anything that gets diseased and it's systemic. Um, and then give it lots of water because that's what it uses to like dilute the the sickness, uh, but um, not syrup. No, no syrup. Yeah, okay. it's disappointing. Yep, yep. Well, this week that was a that was a good transition that I knocked us completely out of. Um, this <laughs> besides week- also completely refusing to acknowledge my maple syrup joke. <laughs> yep. How dare you make a joke about my tree when I'm sharing my feelings? You are sensitive. Wow. (laughs) One day we'll talk about trees and I will tell you all about it. Um, Oh my gosh. I can't believe that I've just revealed my deep feelings about trees. I can't either. I promise not to exploit this. I've kept it to myself. Uh, So today we have an old friend of mine named Gina Brenna Butts, who is the author of Making Peace with Change, Navigating Life's Messy Transitions with Honesty and Grace. Gina's been uh, in full-time Christian ministry for over 20 years, 13 of which she and her family were overseas. Uh, And she writes on her blog, www.ginabutz.com. That's G-I-N-A-B-U-T-Z. And is passionate about helping people move forward in rebuilding their lives after difficult times of transition. Uh, this is a super fun conversation, and uh, we we really enjoyed getting to hang out with Gina. So we know you're going to like it as well. Uh, so let's head on over to our conversation with Gina. Gina, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're so excited to have you. Uh, so, Gina, I was trying to remember last night when you and I first met, and I cannot for the life of me oh. remember. I don't Do know. I yeah. It's just like we've always known each other. It is like we've always <laughs> known each other. I mean, we probably met at a at a conference at some point. I mean, that seems likely. Yeah, we- but I I don't remember the first time either. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Yeah, I remember talking to you early on about publishing. Yeah, yeah. And I remember interacting with you after you had led a workshop that was really good. Um, but yeah, I think at that remember, point, at that I remember point that for one me, workshop that was good. <laughs> I remember. I remember at that point you were still like Matt Michalatis, and he's talking to me, and I was a little bit <laughs> obvious. And now we I, all go through that phase, Gina. Not, we all do. Not, yeah. No, you're just mad. <laughs> I know. It's so disappointing as people get to know me and they're like, Matt Michelotis, normal guy. And then they're yeah. like, Matt Michelotis, oh, that guy who keeps calling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. Stage, uh, it's like stages of grief. 
<laughs> Gina, uh, our first time guests on the show, we always like to ask them what fascinates you. Yeah. Well, on a very kind of, I guess you could say shallow level, what has fascinated me a lot in the last couple of years of my life is watching my daughter play soccer because oh. I do it a lot. Um, we just, <laughs> we just added up in the month of February, she had 13 games between high school and soccer, which is like one every three days. Um, what? but, or sorry, high school and club. So she, her, they were kind of those seasons overlapped and it was her last high school season. Cause she's a senior. And this was the first year that their team won the district final. And then they won the regional quarterfinal, semifinal, final. They'd never done any of that before. And then they made wow. it to state. And then they, wow. yeah. And then they lost. And they're just this little tiny team. Like, it's like, if you want to play on this team, you, you're you on the team. That's it. That's awesome. There's no tryouts. Yeah. What, what so, position does she play? Um, on high school, she plays striker. But on um, her club team, which we also, there was a tournament in there and a showcase in there. Um, she plays center mid on that team. And she's just, she's really good. Like, I That's just, awesome. I love watching her because she's just really, really good. And so it's this great fun thing that, you know, like I, I played soccer as a child, but I was terrible. So it just feels redemptive and it feels fun <laughs> to see her passion. And, and we told her, like we said, like, this is, there were other things too. She got into her top school this quarter or this month. And so, um, at, we're like, this is you reaping what you sow, girl. Like you have, mm. you have worked hard and you've been disciplined and you've persevered and this is you enjoying that. And so she's like, I like reaping. This is good. So that's, awesome. <laughs> so that's um, why we choice. have harvest parties. <laughs> <laughs> her first choice meaning college, I take it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's exciting. So it she leaves exciting. this fall. No, actually she's going in the summer because Florida has this thing where you have to do a summer at some point. So, um, oh. so she's going to the university of Florida and that's where her brother is. So that's fun and convenient. Um, <laughs> good. And, and sad. Um, uh, yeah, desperately sad. Um, I mean, I, I adore her and we have a great relationship and, Aww. um, yeah, I'm grateful that, I mean, her brother's so sweet. He wants to stay up in Gainesville this summer so that he'll be there when she comes and can help oh. her transition. And I love that. So yeah, it's definitely, I'm definitely like looking ahead and preparing myself for the grief of that. Um, mm. but also just trying to really enjoy what we have right now and, you know, make the most of these lasts that we're going through right now. Yeah. I think on a, on a, on a deeper level, I would say my, what's fascinating Mary right now. I just, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Adam Young. He does the place we find ourselves podcast. No, um, he, no. Was, he was just here last week and did some, some story work with our, some of our staff and um, he, his podcast is amazing um, between him and some other things I've been reading and listening to. I'm really fascinated right now by the whole idea that our bodies carry our stories and hmm. that our bodies are, are always telling us stuff. I think for a long time, I've kind of viewed my body as something to manage and control and make do what I want it to do and get frustrated with when it doesn't. Um, so this idea that our bodies are, our friends and they're, and they're telling us how we're doing and we need to pay attention is just this new 
thing that I'm swirling in and I, wow, yeah, I'm in this process or a program of spiritual formation with the transforming center and we have a retreat next week and it's on the body. So I'm super excited because it just is, you know, adding to this experience that I've been having lately of thinking about, you know, what is my, what is my body telling and how can I be kind to it, you know, in response. I think that's such a difficult idea for folks who are raised in evangelicalism to, to get on board with. Yes. Yes. You know, because like, I, re- I remember at my, you know, I was 15 when my great grandfather died, uh, my dad's mom's dad. Mm. And I remember there at his funeral, someone who was speaking said, this isn't, this isn't him. This is just his earth suit, Yeah, you know, and uh, just having that really strong disconnect between, you know, our bodies are not us. They're this thing that we have to like tolerate mm-hmm. for a while until we get to really be us. Yeah. And uh, it's like another country. Like if it wants to get to my attention, like when I'm, (laughs) when I'm stressed, right. Mm -hmm. My body literally has to be like, Hey, we're going to start breaking things unless you start paying attention to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh shoot. I think I'm stressed out. And Krista's like, you have hives, you know? (laughs) Um, I was like, yeah, weird. Right. 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 Um, Yeah. Yeah. I'm like completely disconnected. Yeah. And that was one of the things that, that Adam mentioned last week. He said, just the point that, in the West in particular, we don't have a good integration of body with soul and spirit. And, you know, we, we think of it very separate from who we are. And um, you think of a lot of things in the East, there is much more of an awareness of our bodies and how they're doing and um, that we could learn from. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, that, that maybe that'll end up being a second book. Maybe, yeah. maybe down the road. We'll see. We'll see. I'm still, um, still learning about it myself. So I'm, I'm always curious when, when we have folks on who, who have written books to kind of learn a little bit about the sort of the biography of the book, like mm. um, both, both in the sense of your journey to deciding you wanted to be an author. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we'll start there, but then I also want to hear about this specific idea, especially since you were just talk- talking about navigating some big changes in your life. So, yeah. uh, I, I mean, first, and you don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but just is, is writing a book something you'd always wanted to do, or was this something that sort of a vocation that you felt I, we've had some people who have said like, I didn't want to write a book, but it felt sort of forced upon me by, you know, by God or something like that. So like, where, where do you kind of fall on that spectrum? Yeah. I don't understand those people. Um, <laughs> I'm like, why would you not? Um, when I was, I remember being nine years old at my grandpa's house and I had this yellow legal pad under my arm and I went to my mom and my aunt and I was like, I'm going to write a book. And they were like, okay. And you could just tell by their tone, like they were like, mm, sure, Gina. And I just remember being like, I'm doing this, you know, and I wrote like 10 pages and then I went off and played something else. But, um, yeah, I think I've always loved writing and I've always wanted to write a book. I did. I didn't have an idea until. I think probably when we moved back to the States of what I would write, but I, it was always a hope. Um, so yeah, yeah. I've, I've always, always did want to write. I would and then s- how about this book specifically? Like how, how did this become your first book? What, what made this the thing that came to the forefront? Yeah. Um, when we moved back to the States, I had previously had a blog that I wrote overseas, but it was mainly just, to, to let the grandparents know what the kids were doing. And it was a cathartic 
thing for me, to be honest, you know, like I would go and some weird thing would happen to me and I'd be like, I'm so going to blog about this because nobody's going to believe this. And then when we moved back to the States, uh, I didn't know what to write about anymore because um, America's kind of boring compared to living overseas. So I started writing about the transition just because it was all I could think about. It was so um, devastating, that particular one. And people started responding. You know, they started identifying people who hadn't lived overseas or been through something that traumatic. But it started making me realize, you know, there's a lot that God has taught me through the transitions that I've been through, not just moving overseas, but becoming a mom or job transitions my husband went through or whatever. So I just started writing about those things and um, started collecting it. And that's kind of how the book came about. That's cool. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Gina, we've been talking on the show this week, uh, or this week, this season, a lot about (laughs) reconstruction. Yeah. Uh, we talked some last season about deconstruction, which is a really hot topic right now. Lots of people in the midst of it, lots Mm -hmm. of people who have questions about it. Uh, and we realized that we wanted to spend some time talking about positive things you can do uh, during the process and after when you're rebuilding and not just personally, mm-hmm. but in our culture, there's just a lot of places we need to rebuild. Mm-hmm. Um, so we wanted to talk about that today in the context of, uh, of a chapter from your book, actually about grief. Yeah. Um, in your book, you talk about how in American culture, a lot of times we think of grief as that thing you do when someone dies. Yeah. Um, that it's a really specific thing and we have some cultural norms, like you can take some time off work and we're going to bring you some food and, you know, things like that to help us navigate that kind of grief. Uh, but you're, you say that grief is something broader than that. And even in our conversation so far, you talked about grief about your daughter leaving to go to school. So can you tell us a little more about like when we might experience grief other than when a loved one passes away? Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Like when there's a change in something relational, like for example, your kids going off to college. I mean, we definitely felt it when our son left a couple years ago. Um, I think anytime there's a shift relationally when it's, it could be something positive, even you're getting married, you're, uh, but somebody's moving away. Like there's just anytime there's loss. Um, I think we, we, are so averse to um, entering into loss and suffering as a, as a whole, as a, as a culture that I think that maybe that's part of why we limit it to, to death because <laughs> anything else just, we don't want to give it, um, we don't want to give it the space. Um, but I think of like um, the loss of a, a job or, you know, you move to a new city and you've lost relationships, you've lost a sense of competence, you've lost, um, you know, knowing what you can give, to the world. Um, I think anytime there's a sense of disorientation, um, grief, there needs to be space to grieve that. And I think to honor the loss with grief. Hmm. I don't know if I answered uh, your question fully. No. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I was, I was reflecting on it. <laughs> we are making uh, space for reflection. Good, good, good. I wonder, you know, I have, I have a number of friends uh, who have gone through the sort of the faith deconstruction space mm. and uh, some who have remained in the Christian faith, some who have left mm. and all of them, myself included, uh, have had to reckon with 
grief that I think was pretty unexpected. Yeah. Um, it, I, I, I don't know. I wonder, I don't, I don't want to ask too pointed of a question cause I kind of want to give you space to just talk wherever you'd like to, but hmm. have, have you engaged the idea of grieving as a part of a, a evolving, growing faith also? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, because there's so much that you think of like how particularly a faith binds you to people and, and, and to a community. And so if you make the choice to move away from that, there's, I mean, for one thing, there's that massive loss of, I, I no longer feel connected to this. I, I feel that myself as I, um, I wouldn't say that I've been through deconstruction, but I definitely am in, in a process of, um, you know, taking, always wanting to take a look at my faith and what do I believe? How do I interact with God? And is that just what I've been told or is it really how God is inviting me into relationship right now? And that has required some uh, loss and leaving behind of things. And I think even the way that I interact with, um, you know, people I used to connect deeply with, it it, there's there's a, a loss of connection and a sense of grief of like, oh, we're not going to connect this way anymore. And that's difficult. And whether that's individually, it's like it's with your parents or it's with a friend or it's a cult, you know, I have to leave my church. You know, that's that's a huge thing. So, Do yeah, like there's a loss of community sometimes as we move away from shared. Yes. Kind of belief or yeah. conclusions on things. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. I think, I think something I also observe is like a grieving of a loss of certainty. Yes. Yeah. You know, um, there's, there's a way and and we, we, you know, on this podcast talked about that a lot last season, uh, with some of our episodes, there's a, there's a kind of simplistic faith that offers answers and rules and that kind of black and white thinking. It's like what Richard Rohr calls the first half of life thinking. Yeah. Um, and I think when you move away from that, even though once you get to the other side of that, to the, the second half of life stuff that Rohr talks about, there is a sense of liberation. Uh, there is also still like a grief mm -hmm. for how easy things used to be. Yeah. You know, yeah, um, and it's kind of a bittersweet thing because you don't really want to go back, but it is still just sad. Yeah, definitely. And I think in the uncertainty, because I think there is something in us that that uh, craves rootedness, you know. And so when when we go through any kind of change, we we it's like you know pulling the the plant up by the roots. And so there's this this sense of uh, the uncertainty creates. I think can feel like a loss of identity. It can feel like a loss of confidence or certainty of um, who you are or where you are. And yeah, that's, that is incredibly grieving because it, it can feel so, uh, I don't know. It, it, it feels antithetical to the way that life should be. It feels like we should feel rooted and solid and, um, and that, that is something to grieve. I, I was really struck in your book, Gina, about you're talking about how sometimes we're experiencing grief, but for one reason or another, we don't acknowledge it as grief and we yeah. deal with the secondary emotions coming from it. Like mm -hmm. we're angry or sad or something like that. And, and maybe because we don't recognize it's grief because it's not that someone has died. I don't know. Uh, but are there, are there things we can 
are, are there signs? Are there things we can look for and say like, actually this anger is probably coming from grief, not actual, do you know what anger is not yeah. the prime emotion? Like what, how, how would I see that or know that in my life? Yeah. Yeah. I think anger can be a really good indicator um, because we, we tend to f- go to anger so that we don't feel small and emotions like grief and anxiety and um, that sort of thing can make us feel really small. So I, anger is a great indicator, but I also think a lot of times uh, it's not that we're feeling an emotion that keeps us from grieving. It's just that we're not letting ourselves feel anything at all. Um, so we stay, I mean, and particularly often in transition, say you've moved to a new city or you're in a new job. Like there's so much that you have so much energy that goes into just functioning in this new place and like figuring out, or you're a new parent. It's like, I just have to keep this child alive. And there's so much energy that goes into that, <laughs> that it's just easy to just stay busy, distract myself, avoid what I'm feeling. Um, or if I do feel it to diminish it or spiritualize it away, like, well, I, you know, I'm, you know, I just have to have faith or I just, you know, I'll be fine. Like God is good. This is hard, but God is good. You know, like there's a lot of ways that we, yeah. Can I stop you there? Like, uh, okay. That happens constantly in the Mm -hmm. world I live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think many people, the reason it's happening a lot of times is because many people would say it's helpful. Oh yeah. Uh, to like, say like, uh, well, so for instance, years ago, years ago, I was talking to a woman who told me about this brutal divorce she'd mm-hmm. gone through, like absolutely brutal. Um, and she said, well, I just know that God before the creation of the world planned this for my good. Ugh. Right. And so it's going to be fine. A- and then like set aside all emotion from it. I uh. like, just kind of said like, yeah, see, uh, I, I know it's good. I'm embracing it. I'm joyful. Yeah. And I was like, oh man, really? So tell me a little more about why that might prevent me from dealing with my grief rather oh. than actually being movement forward spiritually. Yeah. So one of the things that we were talking about when Adam Young was here, and then we were talking about it on Monday night when Sam, I mentioned to you last night that I'm in this um, discussion group about the Be the Bridge by Latasha Morrison. And uh-huh. um, we were talking about the, the U diagram. Do you know that U diagram? That's like, no, go ahead and explain it to us. Okay. So, so it's uh, the idea of like, if you have, I wish I could draw this for you, but if you have on the left, uh, the left side, like a, um, a plateau and then on the right side, a plateau. And then in between there's this, there's this um, big dip down in. So that's the U and on the left, you have Friday, you have Good Friday, right? And on Good Friday, there was death. And then over on the right, you have Sunday, which is resurrection. But then in between, you have Saturday. And Saturday is, was full of grief and rage and pain because the disciples didn't know that Jesus was going to be resurrected. And in the, in the particular, the white evangelical church, we want to jump from Friday to Sunday every time. Like we want to say, okay, there was this death, there was this loss, there's, but, but, but God is good and he redeems everything and got, you know, and so we want to jump to the positive every time. And we don't want to let ourselves go down into the reality of the grief and the pain. Um, but if we don't like, then we're not really being like Jesus because Jesus went into Saturday on our behalf. And so this idea that like to really find 
healing for the pain or the wound or the grief that we've had, the loss, we have to allow ourselves to experience the grief. Um, and then eventually we do, we get to Sunday and we get to redemption because that's how God works. But um, we are so averse to loss and grief as a culture that we, we just, it's our instinct to try to just find the resurrection, to find the Sunday in it. Um, because then, because it's painful. <laughs> I mean, that's a simple answer. It's painful. So if I tell myself, well, God ordained this divorce since the beginning of time, then I can just in my mind jump to Sunday and I don't have to engage in the pain and the reality of my pain. But that's just not, it's not honest. I guess it also puts us in danger. Like I'm thinking about it. You're talking about communities of color, for instance. So for mm -hmm. me as a white evangelical straight male, yeah. uh, it's really easy for me to then dismiss the grief of others, mm -hmm. especially if I can't even deal with my own. Right. And then someone's like, Hey, there's not, they've closed polling stations in primarily Latino and uh, African-American neighborhoods, it's really easy for me to then just like dismiss that as something that should create grief, right? right? Like it's an injustice. Right. Um, so I, I guess that's, that's pretty dangerous. It seems like. Yeah, for sure. I, if we can't enter into our own grief, then how could we possibly begin to lament for someone else or to, to enter into what they're experiencing. We're, all we're going to do is we're going to try to make somebody else jump from Friday to Sunday, which is so devalidating and so dishonoring to what we're experiencing. Uh, I mean, I think anyone who's been in grief has probably experienced that. Like I know yeah. when my close friend Shasta passed, mm. you know, it was incredibly painful and still kind of recovering from that, even though it's been years. Yeah. Um, and I remember people would say things like, well, she's, she's in a better place, which I know brings comfort to some, Yeah. Uh, but to me, it didn't. I was like, yeah, but she's not here. Right. Right. <laughs> and that's what I'm upset about. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not like mad. She's in heaven. <laughs> that's great. Good for her. Right. <laughs> well, and, and so often when someone says something like that, it's, they're not trying to comfort you. They're trying oh. to, they're trying to not have to be in pain themselves. Like, cause to, to, to enter into your pain would require them to feel it and experience it. And that's uncomfortable. So it's just easier to put some kind of spiritual solution on it. And which in a lot of cases it's, it's really comes, it ends up being spiritual abuse because you're mm -hmm. using what is true about God to shut down someone's emotion, to, to refuse to enter in and minister to them where they need to be ministered to. Um, so I think, I, I don't, think a lot of us would want to call it that like, no, I'm just trying to comfort my friend. But, um, I, I just don't, I think when I, when I think of that U-shaped diagram, I think, um, what strikes me, and I, I think I say this in the, in the chapter, what strikes me about Jesus is that one of the things that is said about him early on in scripture is that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And I don't know how we think that we can become like Christ if we are not people who are acquainted with sorrow or acquainted with grief and, and willing to enter sorrow. Like that just doesn't, that doesn't seem biblical to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really like what you point out about Holy Saturday. I think, I think in order for us to even have a chance to, uh, risk engaging my own discomfort for the sake of someone else who's grieving. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. requires us to understand that doing that is a holy action action. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas yeah. I think most of the time we think, oh, I'm holy when I feel good and I'm happy right. and everything's nice and I'm not unsettled. Yeah. But recognizing that if 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 the incarnation was anything, it was unsettling for God mm-hmm. to take on flesh, to bear the limitations of humanity, to be crucified for us. Yeah. And so to, you know, to do that in imitation of God in a much smaller way of, you know, entering into someone else's pain and being uncomfortable with them, you know, that, that, that is, that is a holy thing, even though it doesn't feel holy. Right. I mean, um, go ahead. Well, no, I ha- I was going to kind of shift a little bit. So if you yeah. want to well, I was comment just, on that, please. I was just going to say, I think, you know, what comes to mind is when Jesus showed up at Lazarus's death and the first thing that he did was he wept, mm-hmm. you know, like he knew exactly what he was going to do. He, he could have come and been like, guys, it's no big deal. I'm going to raise him from the dead. And he didn't, he, he wept with them. He entered into that grief with them. That was the first thing. And I think that that in itself is an example to us that that's, that should be our posture. So, uh, you know, that, that's obviously we ways that we try to cover up other people's grief, Yeah. but you also talk a little bit about in, in your chapter, uh, how we cover up our own grief with secondary emotions, things like anger, things like that. Yeah. Um, I think this is, this is a space where, it requires us to practice really intentional introspection and self-knowing mm-hmm. to be able to recognize this. So uh, for, for the many, many of us who are not good at that, <laughs> uh, what are some signs that we might be uh, sublimating our grief or, or burying it under a secondary emotion? I think when you just start to realize that you're um, either um, numbing yourself. Like you feel like you're not, if, you know, if I'm not able to enter into someone else's grief, then there's a good chance I'm not entering into my own. But also I think for me, I notice that I just become, um, it, you know, I become more irritated. I become more frustrated more easily. I become discouraged more easily. I, I think it's whenever you are going to other emotions more quickly, that's probably a good sign that there's something that you're not giving yourself space to experience. And I think one of the fears we all have is that if I allow myself to go into grief, then I'm just going to stay there and I'm going to swirl in despair. And um, I remember the last year that we, well, it was the last year that some of our good friends were overseas and we knew that they were leaving. So there was this, I think in the book, I call it the great sadness that hung over this whole year. Um, and I think my husband and I would just recognize times where the, we couldn't be processing it all the time, the whole year, but there would be times when we'd realize, you know what, uh, I've just been, you know, more frustrated lately. I've been more irritated or I've been, I've been feeling this. I've been feeling these prickles of sadness. Like, could we just stop tonight and talk about it? And we'll just sit and cry about it for tonight and tomorrow we'll pick up and we'll move on. Um, so I think a lot of it is just giving yourself some space once in a while. I, I feel like everybody, I, I tend to go to anger pretty easily for myself, but I, I think for other people, it's probably different. It might just be a numbness or it might be uh, discouragement. It might be frustration. <laughs> I don't know, but you know, could you give yourself some space once in a while to, 
to ask yeah. the question. I, uh, I, I sublimate my grief with anger, but I also sublimate my anger. So there's like layers. <laughs> <laughs> what, really what does that look like for you? Uh, you know, it's funny. I was thinking Hives is what I heard. <laughs> <laughs> Denial. Um, well, uh, I was thinking about what you were saying about our bodies telling us things. Yeah. When I'm in the midst of grief, I feel almost overwhelming fatigue, mm, uh, yeah. which yeah. I'm sure is my yes. body saying you need to stop and deal with this. Yes. Um, ironically, one of the most helpful things for me emotionally when I'm in grief uh, is literally just going on a walk. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'll have this overwhelming fatigue, but the best thing for it is for me, not, not like a, I'm not saying exercise, right? I'm saying like a leisurely walk. Don't be crazy. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm not saying ignore what your body is saying when it says you're tired. I mean, the other thing that helps is naps. I love naps. Yeah. Those are, I'm champion napper, but, um, yeah, I think, embracing grief in the sense of like when someone dies, you're not afraid to give yourself space, right? Yeah. Well, that, that might not yeah. be true of everyone. Um, uh, but we're, we're told yeah. it's okay to take space. Right. But like when you're grieving a child moving away, when you're grieving a mm -hmm. change in your belief system, when you're grieving, uh, I don't know any, that so many transitions can bring mm -hmm. grief moving, mm -hmm. let's say, um, or, or JR just went through surgery, right? Like yeah. any of these things can create grief and, giving ourselves permission mm -hmm. for the space like that Saturday, yeah. uh, I think it's really hard for a lot of us. So for uh, me, yeah. a big piece is just saying it's okay to be a little slower today or to like not answer all my email or to yeah. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think fatigue is a really good one. Cause I think one of the things that I've become conscious of in the last couple of years is how much, um, how much emotional energy, um, we can use and, and it, we don't realize we're using it. And so it, it, cause it doesn't show up on your calendar. Like I'm emotionally engaged in this thing. We just keep going about our days. And so I think, um, a lot of gr things like in transition, there's just a lot of emotional relational energy that gets used up more quickly. And so we're drained from that without even realizing like, why am I so, why am I so tired? Why, <laughs> why is this, you're sucking the life out of me. And like what you said about the body, that's so, that's such a great point because I think we do need to reconnect, you know, when we've been putting all of our, you know, if we're totally in our heads or we're totally in our hearts and we're not engaging our bodies, then we're not living fully. Yeah. Uh, well, we need to move towards wrap up, but Gina, mm -hmm. I wanted to just read uh, a quote from your chapter and have you maybe talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, you said grief helps us feel more deeply and see how much our hearts have been opened to love. Yeah. So what, uh, what is the good news, I guess, about grief? Oh, I think that there's such a gift in it because it means that we love something really well. And like, if I never had anything to grieve, then what have, what have I really poured myself into and what's, what's captured my heart? I, you know, I'm, I think of, um, uh, like as our daughter is wrapping up her high school season, you know, there are several times where she would kind of be hit with the grief of, gosh, this is my last practice or this is my last game or whatever. And we would just talk about, yeah, that's so sad. And, and at the same time, not, not at least often we're like, well, at least this is true, but it's like, no, but also this is true 
that isn't it wonderful that God has given you something that you've loved so deeply that it's so sad that you're leaving it behind? Like that is such a gift. Um, so I think it's, it reminds me of um, in the movie Shadowlands uh, about C.S. Lewis and his yeah. relationship with his wife, Joy. He says to her at one point, and this isn't an exact quote, but he basically says, why do we love when it causes so much pain? And she says, because the pain then is part of the joy now. Like they're so tied together. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, when we do have to grieve, there's something really honoring to the, the person or the thing that we loved when we give ourselves the space to grieve, because it says, yes, I really did love this thing so much that it's worth acknowledging how important it was to me. Hmm. Hmm. That's really good. Thank you, Gina. Yeah. Um, we're going to move to every week. We talk about what's fascinating us this week. A lot of times it's pop culture things. Sometimes it's something we're learning, uh, something we're thinking about. Uh, we always invite our guests to join us, but we don't give them a lot of forewarning. So if you'd <laughs> like to join us, you can. JR and I will each share something. Then we'll see if you have something to add as well. Sure. So JR, what's fascinating you this week? Well, as per usual, I'm going to share two, especially because two of our co-hosts weren't able to be with us. So um, I'm going to pretend um, it's fine with me while quietly <laughs> seething with rage. Perfect. Uh, let me take you back in time to the end of 2019. Oh, okay. Oh, all the way back at the end of 2019. Okay. All the way back at the end of 2019. Got it. Uh, a young JR was sitting in a movie theater. Uh-huh. <laughs> And uh, this happened actually more than one time. And he saw a trailer for a movie called The Invisible Man starring Elizabeth JR Moss. How did when he saw this trailer? Uh, pretty, what's, what's, the, what's the exactly right word? Pretty, uh, I would say ennui. Ennui? Yes. <laughs> what? Ennui. What? He felt despair oh. and hopelessness at the state of the of cinema industry because this was clearly a very bad horror movie that was being marketed. Uh, it was releasing in February, which is you know very poor time to release most movies. So this looked like cash another grab. Is that what you were thinking? Yeah, very much so. And I was like, really? Come on, Elizabeth Moss, great actress, right? Invisible Man, like interesting to see that done as a horror thing. Well, and the Universal- and then the reviews came out. The like universal monster movies have all been not great. The re- well, and this one, this is not part of that, right? This is its own freestanding thing. It's a Bloomhouse thing. Oh, it's not Universal. No. Oh. And yeah, it's not part of the uh, failing cinematic Universal monster universe that <laughs> okay. they've. Uh, all right. Um, starring Tom Cruise and Johnny Depp, uh, but no more. <laughs> so then the reviews came out, and they were like almost uniformly positive. Like, this is a masterpiece? Well, that's maybe strong, but it's but very like, scary. It's got a timely message. It's a great movie. It cured my ennui like that? <laughs> yeah. Wow. And I was floored. So I went and saw it this week, and I have to say, this is a great movie. Really? Yes. You you shock me. I know. Okay, a lot. I shock no one more than myself. In, in your whole preamble, now I've I've forgotten the title of the movie. The Invisible Man. Oh, okay. <laughs> and and so, okay, so the original Invisible Man's the story, like the book, right? The H.G. Wells book is like this guy who's kind of a jerk who learns he can turn invisible and it goes poorly for him. Is that yeah. kind of the plot of this movie? Not at all. And and I'm going to go ahead and tell you what the movie's about because the trailer, I'm going to tell you basically what the trailer reveals. Um, 
because it really doesn't spoil the film in any way. Uh, so this is about a woman, Elizabeth, played by Elizabeth Moss, who is married to a man who is controlling and abusive. Okay. And so she gets away. He uh, dies by suicide. And then she finds out that she is a benefactor of $5 million in his will. Wow. Um, assuming that she is not convicted of a crime and not ruled mentally incompetent. Like ever? And, <laughs> or, uh, yeah, or maybe until she has all the money or something. I'm not sure. Okay. Doesn't matter. So okay. almost immediately, uh, things start happening to her. And she becomes convinced that he is still alive and has... Uh, there, there are some passing references made early in the film that he's an optic uh, scientist in the field of optics. Uh, and so she's convinced uh -oh. that he has had a breakthrough, figured out how to become invisible, and is tormenting her. Uh -oh. And, of course, nobody believes her. Of course, like, of course, right? No. And there's actually, like, a, a pretty... Well, I mean, they're, legit, there is an amazing scene. So you know, like, from the beginning, because the way they the way they tell the story, like, you are convinced with her. Oh, so it's like, not like ooh. maybe she's mentally ill, maybe... Right, which I thought was the way the film was going to go, and it's not. Like, like 100%, you know that she... Well, the things she's experiencing are actually happening to her and ooh. not in her head. Oh, I huh. feel a little scared now. <laughs> and so there's an amazing scene pretty early in the film where she, the first time she tells someone what she is sure is happening and you watch her know how insane it sounds and yet still have to tell someone. Oh my gosh. And again, Elizabeth Moss, Moss is just a powerhouse in this film. Like her mm. performance is so complete like there's never a moment where you're questioning what she feels she's going through a whole range of emotions from anger and frustration to fear and terror i mean it's and and uh yeah it's it's a it's one of those movies where you definitely don't want to poke at the the plot too hard you know right it's but, like put your seatbelt on we're gonna run through this don't think about yes, it just be scared <laughs> yes like once you figure out like how the invisibility stuff is happening just just go with it okay don't don't try to, and, and I think the film wisely doesn't spend much time on the science of it. It's like, look, he's got an invisible suit. Just deal with it. Just, yeah. The title of but the movie it, honestly, is Invisible it, Man. Right. It, yeah. Yeah. What did you come here to see? Right. Not, <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> not a documentary. Um, but it honestly ends up being sort of like a Me Too horror film. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah. I'm kind of uh, JR. Wow. I know, like, I, honestly, no one, I complained loudly in the theater every time I saw the trailer, but uh, no one was more skeptical than I, except maybe my wife, uh, who hates watching trailers. So, uh, it's really, really good. Wow. Like, I was surprised, I, I continue to be shocked, I would love to go see it again. Right. Um, and the amount of terror, like, he's invisible, right? Yeah. So, you never know if he's in a scene or not. Mm. And. Mm -mm. <laughs> In that sense, the like the creeping terror, like when she is shouting at an empty room, like you believe he's there too, and the film never tells you whether he is or not. Uh. So it creates this like tremendous amount of dread all the time, which again I think so so ably captures the experience of people who are victims of that kind of abuse. Yeah, you know where that person does live in their head. Uh. Um. It's it's really just it's really really well done. Wow, I'm glad you so, shared the this. Invisible Man. I would not have even thought of because I've heard of 
what you exactly what you said in the past. I was not uh, drawn to that. that I'm thing. here to tell you, it's great. Do you feel a need to go back and tell all those people that heard you shouting about it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that you were wrong. I need to make amends. <laughs> I do. Yeah. Look, everyone, talking. I was wrong. We were. I mean, I was far from the only person, right? There was a lot of eye rolling <laughs> at the trailer. Huh. So, <laughs> well, you said you had two. What's your other? Well, no, go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll wait. Okay, okay. Go ahead, Matt. Uh, mine is a. Uh, this is this is not what is typical for me in these, but I read a theology book this week. <laughs> it was actually really excellent. Um, so you know we've we haven't really touched on this yet. I think we probably will this season. Uh, but there's a pretty big debate in Christendom about how people of faith should be responding to the LGBTQ community. Yeah. Uh, and, and so there's, you know, and there's kind of extremes, right? There's the people who are like, they're evil. We want nothing to do with them. And there's mm -hmm. the people who are like full inclusion into the, uh, you know, into faith, meaning you can be in a committed Christian gay relationship, like all these things, right? Kind of. The, and what happens is the people on what we'd call the affirming side, which is means they say inclusion of LGBT to some level, usually meaning full inclusion. Mm -hmm. will say about the traditionalists, they'll say those guys are uh, bigots, right? Mm. And then on the traditionalist side, they'll say uh, those guys over on the affirming side, they don't love Jesus or the Bible or something to that effect, right? Yeah. Um, so I've read a lot of books on the traditional side and have often seen this argument. You can't be serious about the Bible and be affirming. Mm. Um, so I just read this book called Changing Our Mind by Dr. David Gushy. And he is has been one of the leading Christian ethicists of the 20th century, for sure. Mm. Um, and he, uh, he was, I don't think he is any longer, in the Baptist tradition. Um, and he has come out from the ethicist Christian ethicist point of view to say he's affirming. So this book is kind of his journey and his argument. And mm. I think whether you agree with him or not at the end, you have to say, this is a guy who loves Jesus, loves the Bible and comes to this position in a way that is reasonable, whether you agree mm. with it or not. So I was really interested as I was reading it, you know, there were a few places I was like, okay, that's a stretch. But honestly, I feel that way with every book on this topic I read by a Christian. Hmm. Um, so anyway, I think it's wherever you fall on this question, I think this is a book that is very, very valuable for, uh, if you're on the traditionalist side, making sure that you're being fair about people who are on the affirming side. Hmm. And if you're on the affirming side, I think this builds some real, uh, biblical arguments, not just like, I think we should love people who are LGBT, which is not a bad argument, but I'm saying this has a more robust argument than that. So definitely worth your time changing our mind and it's changing our mind, not minds, because he's talking about how do we shift as a community to become inclusive of LGBT people, hmm. which is interesting. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, Gina, how about you? You got anything? Well, yeah, but I, I feel really shallow after that. Oh, no, that, don't worry. Yeah. Last week, I mean, mine was a <laughs> book about a crow. So, um, the, the thing that I have really enjoyed recently is the Office Ladies podcast. What is that? Oh, my gosh. It's Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsley from The Office. Oh, and I was they, like, literally <laughs> The Office Ladies. 
it is literally the office ladies. And when I first saw that they were doing it, I was like, eh, whatever. And then I listened to the first one and it just is really, really fun. And like, it comes out on Wednesday mornings. Like I woke up this morning and I was like, office ladies podcast. Like, I was <laughs> Do they just Sadly, like chat about really, whatever really or do they, they like talk they, about office you know, etiquette or something? They're doing a rewatch of The Office what? and they are doing it episode by episode. So today they talked about The Injury, which is one of my all-time favorite episodes of The Office. So they do all this behind the scenes. Like this is this is when Jenna broke in that scene. She started, couldn't stop laughing. It, you know, or they talk about why they chose to do this or they talk about how they had to... Uh, like if you remember the, there's a scene where, uh, not in this episode, but Dwight's bouncing on a, uh, exercise ball. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, so, and Jim goes over and one pokes, of the greats. pokes it. Yeah. Pokes it with the scissors. <laughs> it wasn't supposed to pop like that. It was supposed <laughs> to slowly deflate. And like you would see from, from, from Pam's desk, you would see him slowly disappear behind his desk. And they had like 17 balls and they'd, did like 13 takes and every single time it just slowly deflated and <laughs> they just decided to do like one more take and he just happened to hit one of the seams which made it pop and that was the that was the what they kept so like, <laughs> you you hear little funny stories about stuff uh, you know and so it just kind of filled it and it's just fun to go back through and rewatch them and I just yeah. subscribed as you were talking so <laughs> I can't what? wait to listen it's really fun my <laughs> son my son listens to it because he loves the office and so it's fun to talk with him about it and rewatch him with my daughter and yeah that's awesome um jr give us your second one and then take us home yes so have y'all heard of the tv show zoe's extraordinary playlist yes just heard about this yesterday i've been curious about it yeah uh, also great okay okay it's a little high concept and uh-huh. so far so it's it's releasing weekly on hulu okay uh, which is, it's interesting that I like that the streaming services are sort of experimenting with binging versus weekly releases, you know? Um, but it's about a young woman who blah, 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 science stuff, accident, mm-hmm. magic. She can uh, starts, <laughs> Yeah, no. She starts uh, hearing people's inner monologues expressed through singing. Oh. So she'll walk into her office and she'll see someone and they'll all of a sudden burst into like Broadway dance number style <laughs> version of some queen song. That's cute. And then when the song's over, like she looks again and everything's normal and no one else heard it. And it's expressed some deep part of who she, you know, what this person wants. Oh, interesting. So these songs and are so, not, they're not original songs. They're like, nope, no, okay. it's uh, like Glee, think Glee. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was with you until yeah. you said Glee, and now I <laughs> well, want to throw you know, my so, computer out the window and burn it. <laughs> Again, the idea, right, is like, and I, don't, I, I'm very much like this. So uh, I know not everyone probably is, but like, I walk around with a soundtrack in my head all day, you mm-hmm. know, and something will happen that'll make me think of a song, and I'll just kind of start humming it to myself. And uh, so, so what the show is sort of doing is sort of playing on the idea that everyone has these like unspoken thoughts, desires, feelings. And she now has insight into that. Hmm. Uh, and so she is trying to figure out what this person wants based on this song that they've sung to her. And one of the kind of funny parts of it is she's not really a music person. So there'll be some like pr- pretty famous, well-known song that someone performs and she has to go like look up the lyrics to it, you know, and, and she has a, a apartment 
uh, a tenant that has become her new bestie, who's like a super, super, super musical person. And they're like, I can't believe you don't even know that song. Like, what's wrong with you? Um, so, so anyway, the, the most is basically her living her life and interacting with people, or is she like trying to help them or? Well, now it's, so it's four episodes in so far as of time of recording. And yeah, she's starting to figure out she must, you know, she's, she's wondering if the universe is speaking to her or giving her this power for a reason. And so she's now starting to try to help people because typically when, when she hears someone, she can't control it. Like she can't control when she hears someone's song or not. And so it's making her like figure out why. And if she tries to ignore it, people like won't like, they'll keep singing to her. <laughs> uh, but again, they don't realize it's happening. Right. right. Um, and so she's kind of figuring out that this is like gripping her and not letting her go until she addresses it. And they're keeping it, they're keeping the mechanisms of it very mysterious. I hope on purpose. Like, I hope they're not just sort of like, Oh, there's no rules, whatever we want, blah, blah, blah. But the most recent episode, episode four revolves pretty significantly around church. Huh. Um, and there is a congregation and a pastor who are just great that I thought were really well represented in some really fun ways. And it was a really interesting conversation about gender fluidity and LGBTQ folks and what's at stake for them in participating in church. Do, do they hmm. sing Madonna's like a prayer? <laughs> they sure do not. Okay. <laughs> Well, that so anyway, great. I, I'll try it out. I, and, well, and, and yeah, Zoe herself is not religious. So like she doesn't understand church and doesn't understand why this friend of hers even wants to be a part of church and then meeting the path. Like, so it's, I don't know, it's all really interesting and I thought really well done. Cool. So uh, my wife and I have been enjoying it a lot and uh, are interested to see where it goes. Nice. So that's a uh, Zoe's extraordinary playlist streaming on Hulu. <laughs> I feel, All like, right. I feel uh, like I can definitely get my husband to see The Invisible Man, but for sure not. It's always interesting. <laughs> <laughs> we'll report back to us, Gina. We want to know. Yeah, let us know. <laughs> All right. Uh, this has been episode number 252. Our guest has been Gina Butz, and her book is called Making Peace with Change, Navigating Life's Messy Transitions with Honesty and Grace. Gina, thank you again for being on with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Uh, we'll be back next week with another great episode and possibly even another host or two. You never know. Uh, until then, uh, as always, thanks for listening. Make sure you reach out, connect with Gina, let her know that you enjoyed having her on the show and uh, take care of yourselves out there.